Hi, I'm Lily Bogosian, and you're listening to Steady State Podcast. Sit ready. I think this is something, this is a topic, exploitation in this is, is a topic that a lot of boathouses shy away from talking about or dealing with because they don't want to get it wrong. It often involves legal representation. If something goes wrong, it's a it's a slippery slope. And I think Libby made it sound more doable and mm. also reinforced the why that you want to make sure that these policies are in place before something happens and everyone's um, in agreement. Here at Steady State Podcast, we're really interested in backstories, real life experiences on and off the water that make people the rowers, coaches, and coxswains they are today. From indoor rowing to flat water masters to coastal and ocean adventurers, we celebrate you who represent the global humanity of our sport. Together, we disrupt and expand the narrative about rowing culture. We're your hosts, Tara Morgan. And Rachel Friedman. If you're a first time listener, welcome. If you're coming back for another episode, thanks for being here. Steady State Podcast is sponsored in part by our patrons and Concept2 and EB5 Investors. From an early age, kids are aware of stranger danger, but many of them have never thought about misconduct from known adults. Using safe sport training as a springboard, coach and longtime rower Livy Bogosian leads in-depth discussions with her junior rowers about team policies and the concepts of consent, power imbalance, and coercion. She's helping to create a culture where everyone is enlisted in the effort to keep our rowing community safe. I know from my personal experience, policies were not in place before something happens and then they're scrambling and making up policy as they go along. And mm-hmm. and you hope that you have a board member who's got a law degree or, a you know, oftentimes clubs are so small, they need free legal advice. And, you know, you just need to have all these things in place and have confidence to enforce the policies. I think that's what I've seen a lot of is that people don't have the confidence to stand up to a parent or stand up to a coach. That's, I know I've seen that in my own personal world where a coach who was clearly, clearly abusive was pampered and forgiven and, oh, he's just having a bad day kind of stuff. And it was chronic and really affected my relationship to rowing personally Mm. as a coach that you feel betrayed by your boathouse. And I think boathouses are a second home. We talk about that a lot with adult rowers and junior rowers. It can be a second home and coaches step into that role of being mentors and parent. It's delicate. It's very delicate. And while Libby was talking about what's happening there at Brookline High School, I really was thinking about how lucky I am to be at a club that is functioning in a pretty similar way right now as a master's program. Our board has really stepped up in the last couple of years, not only with safe sport, but also just creating policies and disseminating the information that's important to our members and making it clear like throughout the year how things how things work, what the order of things are, if you need to reach out, if you need to report something or someone. Um, but I really like that you mentioned that there are a lot of clubs out there that are teeny tiny that don't have that sort of structure. I think that's why this conversation is maybe even more important so that a teeny tiny clubs knows that even if you don't have a giant board and you don't have a lawyer, it's still important to be thinking about these topics, to be 
aware of what's happening to start thinking about policies and that there are resources available to them. I think it's all under the guise of safety. You know, we talked about Tom Rooks, the director of U.S. Rowing Safety, and Tom's been a resource for us even before he worked for U.S. Rowing mm-hmm. on um, on water safety, off water safety, great coaching relationships. And I would argue that this topic falls under your safety policies. So clubs that are looking to kind of organize themselves and create committees or create work plans for the year, let's put this at the top of the list. If you don't have these things in place, even just codes of conduct for your rowers to sign and agree to, and for coaches to agree to as well, and safety trainings, then maybe that should be number one on your list this year. It's hard to ignore. It's just like how squeamish we can get about about this and that there's such a discomfort level about stepping up when something's not right. And it's, you know, we've heard about many, many coaches across the sports world, many coaches who have not just done one thing inappropriate, but many things inappropriate. And they've been allowed to either remain where they are and continue coaching. Or I think like Libby mentioned, you know, you hear about coaches who are let go from one club, but then another club hires them. That happened here in DC with a club, with a coach who moved around a couple of times. Yeah, it's here too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's just kind of crazy that it's, you know, it's like until you catch wind of what's happening. But I think that that's going to get harder and harder these days because of safe sport, because of U.S. rowing's insistence that um, we all do the safe sport training, but also that U.S. rowing is being really clear that there's a reporting mechanism in place. And it sounds to me like clubs and individuals are using that more and more. And let's also not underestimate the fact that these kids coming up have grown up with these cases in the mass media. Mm-hmm. They've grown up with the threat of cyberbullying and being exploited on social media. They've grown up with this and they are far more woke than we mm-hmm. ever were. And I would mm-hmm. argue that our generation, you and I being 40s, 50s, that we're this generation that still has come from a very sexist misogynistic upbringing our parents generation you know it just was the 50s and they just kind of went forward and then maybe they got on board in the 70s with you know some more progressive thinking but we are still a generation that grew up with these very binary divides of gender and gender roles and uh overlooked some things so this generation much more woke much more informed and also their tolerance level for this kind of crap is way lower. Is way lower. And I think they, and their radar is way more acute. It's yeah. way more and, agile. And I'm, I'm not sure about this 100%, but it seems to me that younger people are also more, they feel more empowered. So when we've talked to not only Libby, but some other juniors coaches about how their kids kind of act around the boathouse and their awareness of things, I'm like, geez, I was not thinking about these things when I was 15 years old. So yeah, times are changing. Times are changing. And thank goodness for people like Libby who are making waves and uh, the best kind. Yep, good change. And with that... Please enjoy episode two of season five with coach Libby Bogosian. The kids are almost always the ones who see things happening. So the the kids play a crucial role in helping our community to, to be safe because perpetrators know to hide 
their behavior from other adults. And so realistically, it's probably not going to be me or my assistant who notices that someone is getting inappropriate Snapchats or weird text messages or getting asked to stay late after a particular class every single day. They're going to be the ones who notice. And so they they should be the ones who are equipped with the information that they need to help keep each other safe. And they should know what to do if that happens. Hello. Good morning. Hello. Good morning. Nice Hi, to see Libby. you all. You too. Nice to see you and nice to meet you, Libby. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. My name is Libby Bogosian. Um, so today I live and work in Boston, Massachusetts. I am a curriculum designer. I work mostly in biotech, designing labs for high school and college students. I learned to row in 2003 at Narragansett Boat Club in Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, I've also rowed for Brown University and for Riverside Boat Club and New Haven Rowing Club when I lived in Connecticut. And I've coached for the NBC Juniors, the CRI Novice Girls and Masters, the Windsor Varsity Girls, the Choate Varsity Girls, Craftsbury, the Harvard Light Men, and now the Brookline Novice Girls. I continue to row out of Riverside Boat Club, where I am also on the board. And when I am not rowing, you can usually find me baking or spending time with my dog. On a scale of one to 10, how was your past rowing week? I'd give it probably about a six. Um, I've had to be pretty flexible in the last week because we actually just had a really big snowstorm here in Boston. And so I had to move some workouts around so that I wouldn't be, for instance, doing a 10 mile run in the middle of a blizzard. And then this morning we had to sort of dig everything out after all of the snow. And so it meant that my morning was a little bit tighter than normal. But frankly, I think that shoveling snow should definitely count at least half uh, in terms of steady state. Yeah. Okay. So um, one thing we do to help our listeners get to know our guests is we put you through a lightning round of questions we call the hot seat. Are you ready? I am ready. Port or starboard? Both. Sweep or skull? Skull. Bow seat, stroke seat, or engine room? Anyone who knows me knows my answer to this. Bow seat for sure. Head race or sprint race? Head race. Uh, uni or tank and trow? Uni rolled down so that you can tuck stuff into what used to be the top part. Favorite coxswain command to give or receive? I actually have two. Um, and one of them has to do with coaching novices on a really busy body of water. So I coach on the Charles where it is extremely, extremely busy all the time. And the one call that I teach all of my novice coxswains to do without fail is in two. Because if you have eight kids in a boat and you tell them to do something, you've got maybe one or two of them who know what the thing is that you have just asked them to do and can actually execute it at the proper time. You've got about two of them who know what they're supposed to do, but kind of goof up the actual execution. And then you've probably got four or five who have <laughs> no idea what was just said or weren't listening. And if you use the phrase in two, at least it gets their attention and they know something is about to happen because mm -hmm. otherwise you end up with half of the kids doing the correct thing and half of them not knowing that something is going to happen. And so the boat ends up pointed in completely the wrong direction. Oh, and no. because it's the Charles, you have probably interfered with someone behind you who will then shout at you. But <laughs> if you use in two, they at least know that something is about to change and they need to pay attention yeah. and be prepared to do whatever the thing is. And hopefully they sort of get it right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I, and just to clarify, you're coaching teenagers. 
And I'm now thinking as someone who lives and co-parents a 15-year-old, I'm thinking I might be using into at home into <laughs> time to do the dishes. <laughs> That's why he doesn't row, but I think it's a great I think it's a good strategy. It's a good attention getter. Yeah. Because yeah. otherwise um, it's just mush chaos. Anyway. Okay. That's yeah. good. What's Teenagers your, what's don't tend one? to like, they don't like to, they don't like surprises. Um, and no, so if you can give no. them a warning that something is about to change, they <laughs> will probably still be cranky, um, but they might be a little less cranky. I'm just dying. That is hilarious. So using that at home. What's your second one? You had said you had two. Um, my second one is actually probably w from way back in college. At the time, we were finishing up our regular season. Um, I went to, to Brown and rode there, and we were getting ready to finish up and head into the postseason. And our coxswain said to us, I want to send a message. And she was talking to us because we were trying to put down some really fast times to basically communicate to all of the other teams in the country, bring whatever you got because we're ready and we're going to be really fast. That's a good one too. Man, I'm I'm adding that to my playbook for this season. Okay, favorite place to row? I'm pretty flexible. Um, so I learned to row on the Seekonk River in Providence, uh, Rhode Island. And it's really rough and really salty and really windy, but it made me super tough. So even though I love the Charles, I might actually say the Seekonk River in Providence, Rhode Island. Best piece of coaching advice you've ever received? I've got a couple. But uh, the big one for me is think about playing the long game. So it's really easy to make kids really, really fast in the short term. Um, you really load up on training. You do a ton of sessions and a ton of volume, four seasons a year, complete specialization. But you also really run the risk of burning them out or having them get injured. And frankly, I think this is the most important thing. You're also running the risk of just having them be really, really unhappy. Mm -hmm. um, so that that's not in anybody's best interest. And my philosophy is that happy kids are faster in the long run, full stop. So I like to think of what I do with my high school kids as kind of training the teammates that I would be happy to have someday in the future. So I still row six days a week and the women that I train with are incredible. So I want to row with people that are you know, skillful rowers and are fit and are good athletes, but I also want to row with folks that are good teammates. So they're hardworking and they're empathetic and they're interesting and they're kind and they are, you know, punctual and show up at 5.15 in the morning. So you're not all waiting around for them. But I think that that's really important. And I've actually been rowing and coaching long enough that I've actually had a couple of kids that I taught to row when they were in high school they grew up, they went to college, and then they became my teammates. And mm. one of them actually was my pair in the bow pair of the Riverside Eight at Head of the Charles in 2017. How was that? What did that feel like? That was an absolute blast. Entertainingly, the two of us row a lot alike. Yeah. Who would have thought? <laughs> yeah. You know, I've, I've heard from a lot of coaches, and I think Tara and I as coaches want to develop rowers who are also good people, but I like the way that you phrased it, is that not only are you helping develop good people, but good teammates for the long haul. And that's a wonderful way of thinking about it. Yeah, I've been lucky that I've had a lot of time working with teenagers. So I've been a coach, I've been a teacher, and then I also did what we call the triple threat. So I taught 
coached and lived in a dormitory at a boarding school for a number of years. And so I have Mm -hmm. lived in a dorm with a bunch of 17-year-old girls. And it's really important to think of them kind of as whole people and not just as students, not just as athletes. Um, And that Mm -hmm. makes a really big difference. All right. We've got one more question. Tara, you want to ask it? Oh, sure. Coffee before or after a row? Depends if I'm rowing at 5.15 or if I'm rowing at 7 a.m. or later. So if I am rowing at 5.15 in the morning, no coffee. I would rather take the extra 10 minutes and sleep until 4.40 rather than 4.30. But if I'm rowing at 7 a.m. or later, absolutely coffee. Sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> absolutely awesome. coffee. I love it. So now we want to find out how it all got started. What was happening in your life when you found rowing and how did you first get out on the water? Oh, man. So I really, really did not want to row. Um, I had tried probably half a dozen different sports at that point. And unless it was skiing with my family or doing some hiking, basically anything sports related was a pretty negative experience. Um, Fun fact, I actually almost failed PE in fifth grade because, among other things, I couldn't catch a football. Um, And I think my advisor might have actually intervened to make sure that I would at least get a passing grade. But uh, by the time I tried rowing, I'd been playing field hockey and lacrosse for a number of years, and I didn't really like them all that much. But I really didn't want to start all over again with yet another new thing that I probably also would not be very good at. My plan at the time, and at the time I was a sophomore in high school, so my plan was basically just to focus on schoolwork and do whatever it was that I needed to do to check off the athletic requirement box that I needed to graduate, get into a good college, and once I had done that, to never have anything to do with sports or athletics ever, ever again. Mm. Um, And needless to say that things have turned out a little differently than I would have expected. Yeah. So my parents, they actually pestered me for over a year to try rowing. And they finally convinced me to do my school's learn to row program in the spring of 2003 when I was a sophomore. And the first day was absolutely insane. It remains the most insane practice or race that I have ever had in over 20 years of rowing. We went out in a barge and it's one of those big wooden things that has 12 people and it's got six people on each side. Mm-hmm. So we have 12, you know, 14 year old girls, none of whom has ever done any rowing ever. We'd been out for like maybe 10 minutes and we just about gotten the hang of this, you know, arms only thing and we're feeling pretty good. And then all of a sudden the sky just turned black and mm-hmm. a massive storm just blew up out of absolutely nowhere, pouring rain, lightning, thunder, white caps, howling wind. It was really intense and it blew us. It probably blew us a mile downstream uh, before we could sort of get the boat turned around and row back into the wind. Um, And it also actually overturned and swamped a ton of actual racing shells that were on the river and it blew a boat onto the rocks and put a hole in it. And so the the coaches of the shells that overturned and swamped you know, of, co- of course, they tried to rescue their athletes, but they were in those little tin can launches and they were in this heavy chop. And when you have a, more people than the launch is really designed to hold and it's a really rough day with really big waves, the launches can't handle it. And so the launches swamped too. Oh, my gosh. No. Oh, no. I know. It was, it was really bad. Um, and this is in April in New England. And so the oh, water so chilly. Is, 
Yeah, it's re- it's really cold. So the good news is that everybody actually ended up being okay. The state police marine unit actually had to come and rescue a whole bunch of people. And some people had to be taken to the hospital for hypothermia. But amazingly, everybody was actually okay in the end. Wow. And um, you're like, welcome to rowing. This is great. <laughs> I know. Oh, How did mom- you go back for another day? <laughs> oh, my mom got an earful when she picked me up that day. I was like, what did you sign me up for? Yeah. Um, but uh, I mean, uh, you know, amidst all of this chaos, um, these 12 novice girls, we somehow figured out how to row some vague approximation of full slide. And we kind of flailed and zigzagged our way back to the dock, got there just in time for the end of the storm. Did come back wow. for day two. Day two was a uh, Definitely an improvement over day one, but not much because our coach was so traumatized that she didn't want to take us out on the water. And so she stuck us all on the ergs and had us do a 2K. Oh oh my gosh. So that day one experience, I mean, we could have a whole conversation just on safety based on that day one experience. Yeah. As a a teenager, actually, I wasn't that scared at the time, which I think is probably, frankly, pretty foolish. Um, But looking back on it 20 years later as a coach, that that is every coach's worst nightmare is to have your kids get hurt and to not be able to to help them. That is every coach, every educator's worst nightmare. Hopefully your coaches learned something out of that experience. And it sounds like it didn't turn you off from coming back the next day. Well, I almost didn't come back for day two. And then uh, our coach stuck us on the ergs and said, okay, we're going to learn how to use this machine and we're going to do something called a 2K. And I had no idea what that was. And I had never heard of erging, forget even trying it. Um, I definitely fell off the seat at least twice. Um, <laughs> but uh, I was so used to being bad at sports that mm. I was really perplexed when I got to a point where the little counter thing said zero and everybody else was still going for <laughs> at least another minute. And I was a hundred percent sure that I had screwed something up, that I had done the wrong workout or that I had you know, d- done something wrong, particularly because the varsity coach at that time was watching and she like comes over and kind of looks down at the monitor. And I was like, oh no, here we go. Like, this is going to be yet another coach who screams at me, but she actually wasn't mad. And she said, Hey, you know, like she introduced herself. And she said that it was too late to join the team that year, but that I should definitely try out next year and in the meantime to keep in touch. I don't know that that would have been enough to kind of sell me on uh, rowing after, you know, almost drowning on day one and then doing an excruciatingly painful 2K on day two. But at some point during that learn to row week, I saw the Brown Women's Crew Program who rows on the same body of water and I'm standing on the dock and I see their team go roaring past and they have four or five eights across they've all got the bears painted on the bows with the teeth and they're at full sprint you know 36 38 strokes a minute and they're duking it out as they come flying past the dock and I was just mesmerized Mm -hmm. and I thought it was by far the coolest thing I had ever seen and that if that's what rowing was then then I was in Hmm. wow um there really wasn't any junior rowing in Providence at the time. This is in 2003. So I actually had to wait a year before learning how to actually row. So the next spring I joined my school's team and I learned to sweep in an actual shell, not in a barge. And then over the summer, I learned to row single. I kept getting faster on the erg. I decided I wanted to try to row in college. And I remain appreciative that uh, a lot of these programs 
thought that I had potential and were willing to take a chance on me. So I didn't come from a powerhouse program and I hadn't been rowing that long, but I think they thought that I had good grades and I had good test scores and that I had managed to make a fair amount of progress in a really short amount of time. And they seemed to think that I would have some potential. So yeah, yeah, I ended up going to Brown. I rode all four years and it was really, really challenging, but a very worthwhile experience. And we actually won a lot of races while I was there. And I, I still really enjoy rowing and training and racing to this day. Um, the, the decision to start rowing has really been a major turning point for, for me in, in my life. So in short, mom, you were totally right all along <laughs> as you so often are. Alongside going into Brown at, around that time, you started coaching. So what, what brought you into that coaching sphere at such a young age? Yeah, I needed a job that I could do around my summer jobs. My undergraduate degree is in STEM, so I was working in a lab in the afternoons. And so I needed a job that I could do in the mornings. And so uh, Narragansett Boat Club had a, had by that time established juniors program for the summer. And so they needed coaches. And one of my former coaches came up to me at the very beginning of the summer. And he's six foot seven and a former elementary school principal and a giant in all ways. And mm -hmm. he sort of peered down over his spectacles at me and he said, so when you come to work for us this summer, here's what we would like for you to do. And I was like, mm. felt like saying, you know, wait, what do you, don't you mean if like it, it, it just wasn't even, he didn't even float it as an option, but I was like, yeah, okay. That's, that actually sounds kind of fun. And so I tried it and loved it, had a great time. And I think part of that was that I had such wonderful colleagues. We still talk about how wonderful that era was where a whole bunch of us would come back every summer from school and we would all coach together. We had a great time. I love that. Sounds like um, rowing summer camp. I think everybody loves those really just fun, carefree summers where kids are coming in and people are coming in and learning about the sport and just having fun. And it's just, a, it's a great environment. It's a little bit different than a scholastic year coaching calendar and that summer vibe, you know? Right. We had a big range of kids. So we had really young kids that were just kind of trying it for the first time. And then we had kids that were in high school and were hoping to gain some speed and, um, you know, a whole bunch of different kinds of goals. But it was a really fun experience for all of us. It was really a blast. It's sweet when all the pieces fall into place. I'm thinking about my first couple of years of coaching and coaching novices and learn to row. And I think I also got really lucky with a good coaching staff, a club that was supportive and a really excellent group of rowers. I actually originally started off coaching novices. So when I was 19 or 20, I was coaching high school kids who were just trying rowing and learning how to row a single for the first time. Um, and I've done basically every other demographic since then, but this somehow remains my favorite. And frankly, I would say that coaching novices is pretty much double the hassle, but 10 times the satisfaction, mm -hmm. um, at least for me. When I describe what it's like to people that don't row, usually I describe it as teaching nine 14-year-old girls to collaboratively drive a car and it's being driven during rush hour. The car is the length of a semi-truck and it has <laughs> the price tag of Audi. Truly never fails to astonish me just how much mischief they can get into in the 10 seconds that it takes you to restart your motor when it stalls. They drop stuff and they crash into things and they forget to walk, watch where they're walking and they manage to walk off the end of the dock into the river, which at least one kid does every year. Um, <laughs> 
but they're, they definitely walk around uh, with, with their eyes shut banging off the walls. Um, but it's, it's really amazing how much progress they can make in such a short amount of time. You know, you look at them week to week, or even from the start of a practice to the end of a practice, and the changes that they can make and the amount of progress they can show in a really short amount of time is just remarkable. But the thing that really appeals to me, I mean, it's obviously fun to teach people how to row and to be better athletes. But the thing that really appeals to me is that you can watch them grow as people so much in just a season or two. And of course, they get more skillful at rowing, but they make new friends and they find their community and they get more organized and more self-confident and they're able to plan ahead a little bit better and they're more comfortable with their body. And it's, it's really remarkable to watch that. I I coached at a boathouse where we had the fresh 12 and 13 year olds showing up in the summer for camps. I always thought, let's take a picture of them on their very first day when they're like gawky and skinny and braces and glasses. And then fast forward to their senior banquet photo and they're muscly and tall and oh my god I love it um I actually I do something somewhat similar so I tend to make a three minute video at the end of each season the kids are like oh my god look at us like look oh god our our, our oars are everywhere and they're like we're bumping into each other look that's so oh jeez and then they yeah. look at the the footage from the end of the season and they forget how how far they've come. The other thing that also just really appeals to me is at least with most high school novice girls, they are so excited about everything. Even just really small things that most of us take for granted, they find incredible. So like the fact that we drive a motorboat during practice. We don't notice that anymore. But whenever I explain this to kids, I say, hey, I don't stand on the bank and have you row back and forth in front of me. You're going to go out in a boat and I'm going to get into a motorboat and drive it after you down the river. They're like, really? That's so (laughs) cool. And they love that you can like start the motor with a little key and that it makes a cool vroom sound when you turn the key. Uh, (laughs) They love like the turtles and the boats and the bridges and the birds. They look at the, the erg memory screen and there's the little heart on the memory screen. They, in all of their wisdom, decided that this was an emotional support heart and that it was clearly there because you've just done a really hard workout. And so they were like, oh my gosh, I have an emotional support heart too. Oh, this is so great. (laughs) And I mean, they're just, they're so excited about absolutely everything. And even though they get a little confused sometimes, it does kind of warm my heart and it reminds me to appreciate the small things too. It sounds like you have a lot of fun with them and that they make you laugh, but you can't take your eyes off them for a second. Yeah, they of course do make me laugh. I I try so hard to laugh with them rather than at them, but sometimes it's really difficult. So for instance, I once had a kid in the the first like two days of the season, we're still on land and learning how to use the ergs. And we're talking about, okay, so we're going to go to the boathouse for the first time tomorrow. And here's what you need to bring. And here's what you need to, to make sure that you you need to have a full water bottle and you need a hair tie and sunscreen and all this stuff. And one of the kid goes, um, I have a really important question. So where do I buy a rowing bathing suit? 
And and can it be a one piece or does it need to be a bikini? <laughs> Good question. Uh, she was thinking ahead. Oh <laughs> yeah, that's that's basically what I said. Uh, yeah, but sometimes it is a little hard not to laugh. On the last episode, we met three-time Olympic medal-winning coxswain Mary Whipple, who founded Ninth Seat to offer camps, resources, and community for coxswains. Mary tells us about lucky breaks and logistics, and why being a motivator isn't at the top of her coxing list. If you missed it or any of our episodes, listen at steadystatenetwork.com slash podcast or on your favorite podcast app. And while you're there, could you leave us a review? When you do, it helps our podcast get noticed and reach more ears. Steady State Podcast is sponsored in part by Breakwater Realty Group. Daydreaming of new lakes, rivers, and coastlines to row and play on? Consider a home in Maine. The Breakwater Realty Group, brokered by EXP Realty, can help you find your home away from home or relocate to a new primary home with ease. Connect with the team by visiting breakwaterrealtygroup.com and scheduling an obligation-free buying consultation. Maine, it's the way life should be. In two, we're back with Libby Bogosian. That's one, two. You know, I grew up with coaches and Rachel and I both have been lifelong athletes and softball and various sports. And I wanted to switch into our conversation about safe sport and the relationship between coaches and athletes. And I have always valued so much my coaches. They've been surrogate parents in a lot of ways. They've been mentors in every possible way. And I've only had an issue when I was an adult in in a co-coaching and a peer environment. And I want to ask you about what you're doing with your initiative around safe sport. And if you can maybe break down and tell our listeners what is safe sport and and how is it being used in the rowing world? Okay. So Safe Sport is a pretty new organization. It was created by Congress in 2017, and it was created in response to many reports of abuse in sports that became public. So for instance, Dr. Larry Nasser, formerly of USA Gymnastics, and it does a few things. So it provides rules that teams and coaches need to follow. It provides trainings for adults who coach and or interact with athletes, and it handles reports of misconduct and consequences if necessary. For Rachel and I in our world, and also now as U.S. rowing members, um, we're all required to do the safe sport training. So that came from USOC down into U.S. rowing. And now it's not just coaches who are required to take it, but now people who are U.S. rowing members. Why is this issue important to you in your coaching now? Why does this really resonate for you? I would like to preface this by saying that I'm not an expert, and this is something that's, it feels really personal to to many of us. And I unfortunately have seen misconduct take place in a variety of different contexts. So as an athlete, as a student, as a teacher, as a coach, and also as a board member. And it's also been, it's been in the news increasingly in the last few years. So we had, for instance, Jerry Sandusky, um, as well as the recent articles on Kirk Shipley and Ted Nash and Connell Groom that have been in the mainstream media. And then, of course, the big, famous Boston Globe Spotlight series 
uh, on abuse and the cover-ups within the Catholic Church. And this, this is clearly an issue that unfortunately is, is pretty prevalent. And it really hit home for me when the Spotlight team from the Boston Globe, they wrote a similar series on the issue of abuse in private schools. And when it was published, I was actually teaching, coaching, and living in a dorm as a dorm advisor at Choate Rosemary Hall, which was one of the schools that was named in the article. So the Spotlight team discovered in their investigation that the administrations at a number of schools, including Choate, knew that abuse had repeatedly taken place. And they not only didn't report it, but they also allowed the perpetrators to leave quietly and then get jobs at other schools. And I think we've actually seen almost identical patterns happening in the rowing world where you Mm -hmm. have coaches who are asked to resign from one program after engaging in some form of misconduct. They go to another program and then they repeat the same behavior at that next program as well. And unfortunately, rowing programs are subject to a lot of the same pressures as schools. They don't want the bad publicity. They often don't want to acknowledge it because there's a risk of being sued. And I think what this shows us is that this is a really pervasive issue, and it's not just limited to sports or to rowing. For juniors athletes, what sort of training exists through Safe Sport? And what sorts of things are your club doing to stay and keep your community safe? Athletes do have to take a 90-minute official safe sport course when they turn 18, and they're no longer a minor. So even though they're still in high school, they are legally an adult, and so they have to take a special training. And there is a similar course for younger teens that kids can take. It's, I think, 20 or 30 minutes. But the reality of this is if you're only doing the required online training, that doesn't happen until you're 18. And that's, that's pretty late. Yeah, it's too late for a lot of kids. Yeah. And in addition, because all of this stuff is an online self paced course, there really isn't a whole lot of accountability for it. And there's no guarantee that even if they do click through it, that they're actually paying attention and that it's actually going to resonate. And Mm -hmm. as with anything with teenagers, it has to feel relevant for kids to meaningfully engage. Tara and I, I think Tara spotted you on Facebook in the Women's Rowers Professional Network. And um, you started a conversation there about this and that you have started to create some programs and policies at your boathouse and doing a seasonal safe sport discussion with your novices. How did that come to be? And can you tell us a little bit about it? Sure. So I think that one of the really important things to remember here is a lot of this revolves around good communication. And even without creating anything new, just improving communications around policies that are already in existence is crucial. So for instance, making sure that parents and kids and coaches are all on the same page and they all understand what the requirements are around stuff like one-to-one communications, use of a locker room, use of social media, physical touch. It's helpful if every single person is on the same page so that everyone is aware of what the expectations are. And that's especially important whenever you're dealing with minors, but it's also important for programs that only involve adults. At Riverside Boat Club, where I row and also serve on the board, We have a very detailed, what we call code of conduct for all of our members, even though 
almost all of our members are adults. And it explains in detail every policy that we have against stuff like hazing, discrimination, theft, online misconduct, sexual harassment, all of that sort of stuff. All of our policies are listed in this document. And every member and coach agrees to abide by it when they join the club. Every person who comes through the door is supposed to have read this, understand it, and they agree to follow all of these rules. And we also have a reporting form that people can fill out if a member or a coach violates any of these policies. So for instance, if you have an athlete who has lost their seat race and they were really angry, they got back to the dock and they had an altercation with their coach and they clocked their coach. You know, that, that obviously would be a major violation of our code of conduct. So the complaint would then go to the board, we review it, and we have a very clear set of procedures already in place that we can follow to make sure that we understand exactly what happened, discuss it with the people involved, and then to issue any consequences if necessary. But this helps us make sure that the whole process start to finish is as fair and objective as possible and everyone is held to the same standards. And a lot of scholastic teams have something pretty similar, but the mm -hmm. common thread that they have is everybody needs to be aware of what the expectations are and the potential consequences before something happens. Sure. So whether that's academic integrity, hazing, vaping, it's not fair to do a bait and switch. It's important to lay out what all of the expectations are in advance and to have a procedure already decided and in place so that you can take care of it if something does happen. We often find that our listeners fall into a couple categories. They're master's coaches, they are current master's rowers, they are often parents. And some of the questions we get and we see are, where can I find a copy of a code of conduct that I can put into place in my boathouse? And I think you're in a situation where it's a very established policies and procedures and programs and and I think there's still a lot of little tiny baby clubs who barely have safety waivers. Um, and I just wanted to acknowledge that and say that there are plenty of resources out there. So if people who are listening to this episode are like, whoa, 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 that's something beyond what we have and we want to do that, that we'll post links and some helpful resources for that. Totally. Um, so we actually make all of our documents and procedures available to the general public. So if you go to the Riverside website, you can see our code of conduct, our member handbook, and that includes all of the stuff about, you know, cold water rowing and recommendations for rowing before dawn and things like that. But all okay. of that stuff is free and available on our website if you want to look at it. And as an aside, I think you will never regret clearly laying out your expectations in writing in advance, whether you're a master's rower or you're a coach or you're running a program. It's a really good and proactive step to take when it comes to just run-of-the-mill issues that teams tend to run into. So for instance, if you have your criteria for boat selection explained in advance and all of your team's rules explained in advance, it's much easier to deal with kids and or parents who demand to be given special treatment. Whether it's related to boat selection or to getting out of consequences for misbehavior, if you've already made it clear what you expect and what your criteria are and apply those criteria universally, it's much, much harder for them to charge you with being biased or being out to get them because you hate them or 
being purposely biased against their kid for whatever reason, it really helps you to make sure that everything goes a little bit more smoothly. And can I just say that I think that's a really big problem or challenge for people when the rubber meets the road, because I think compliance with safe sport, compliance with your code of conduct, when you've got a parent who might be like a huge donor to your boathouse, breathing down your neck and you're trying to say, but you signed this code of conduct thing and you knew about this, it can be a really hard situation. I know I've heard that many times people who are donors withholding funds because they their kid didn't make the varsity boat or, you know, just like stories like that. What can we do to ensure that coaches feel safe enough to actually enforce and that coaches have the resources to say, all right, well, my next step is to go to my manager or my supervisor or the board. If a parent approaches a coach in a parking lot and is like, you can't do this to my kid, you know what I mean? Like, or at a regatta or something. I can certainly empathize. I actually have, I have had parents get pretty upset with me over stuff like boat selection. Um, I actually had a parent that pushed me into a wall about 10 years ago. He was very, very upset. Mm -hmm. Um, And I didn't feel like I could say anything at the time. I felt like I must have done something to deserve this. You know, I mean, I was 21 or 22 at the time. And if that sort of thing were to happen now, I think my response would have been pretty different. Um, And so I got myself out of there. But this is where it's really important to make sure that your coaches and your board of trustees and your program director and you any any other sort of important, powerful figures are all on the same page and that they're they're willing to back up their coaches. I wish that had been the case at, at the time for me. And if you felt like that as a 20, 21 year old, imagine what a 14 year old feels like coming up against the same situation. So it sounds like what you're creating at your boathouse are not only policies to put in place and get everything in writing, but you're also creating an environment where your athletes say, if something doesn't seem right or feel right to me, this is what I can do. Because I remember being a young athlete and just being like, the coach is in charge. You know, whatever happens, happens. And we don't always know where we should turn when something doesn't go right or seem right or something downright inappropriate happens. And there's so many delicate psychologies to a child's relationship to a coach because that coach might be in a parent role, providing that kind of a feeling for that child or that kind of a validity for that child. When I was rereading this morning the Washington Post article about Connell Groom, the original article that that he wrote back in July, that kids who really want something really bad will do anything and will put up with anything and tolerate a lot. So can you talk a bit about what's the what you call the difference between unpleasant and where it draws the line with abusive? Sure. But I think before we do that, it would actually be pretty helpful if we kind of remind ourselves of what it's like to be a teenager and the context in which they exist. I think that will shed a lot of light on things. Mm-hmm. So when we think about what it's like to be a teenager, they're they're trying to figure out how to navigate the adult world, which is really, really difficult. And they literally wake up one morning and they have a totally different body and all sorts of new expectations and pressures that have suddenly appeared but their brains and their problem solving skills have not kept pace with all of these other changes. And they're going to be playing catch up brain wise for about another decade. So some degree of self-absorption and inability to think big picture 
is really normal for teenagers. It's just the way their brains are wired for the time being, but it does create a fair amount of stress and loneliness for them because a lot of the time they feel like so much about them is, is somehow weird and that nobody understands them and they can't imagine anything different. So they're usually dying to feel accepted and to feel some kind of connection with their community. And I think that's especially true as we sort of navigate the aftermath of the COVID pandemic. No matter how many times they say, I don't care, realistically, they're dying to feel accepted. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. because of this, they can be uniquely hardworking and they become intensely loyal to almost any group who makes them feel that sense of belonging. Nobody goes all in like a teenager who feels like they found their people. And it's one of the things that makes coaching them both unbelievably frustrating, but also extremely rewarding. That's a really great thing about being a teenager is this sort of hyper fixation on certain areas of interest and this intense loyalty to folks that manage to make them feel that sense of acceptance and belonging. But it's also possible for someone to exploit that intense desire to be accepted and who tells them no matter what else they're doing that they are important and special. So knowing that this is a risk, we have to figure out ways to broach this topic with teens in a way that's gonna be relatable and also that hopefully will not feel too much like yet another lecture from an adult. One thing that I I wanted to make sure that I included in here is the kids are almost always the ones who see things happening. So the, the kids play a crucial role in helping our community to to be safe because perpetrators know to hide their behavior from other adults. And so realistically, it's probably not going to be me or my assistant who notices that someone is getting inappropriate Snapchats or weird text messages or getting asked to stay late after a particular class every single day. They're gonna be the ones who notice. And so they, they should be the ones who are equipped with the information that they need to help keep each other safe and they should know what to do if that happens. So what are some examples of some red flags or toxic behavior that we can be telling our athletes to look out for or as coaches? We discuss a few different things. Um, Physical abuse seems to be easier to spot, generally speaking, but emotional and sexual misconduct seems to be more insidious. So we teach our athletes to look out for a few things. So someone who ignores physical boundaries or being told no, an adult, even if it's someone they know who is asking for or sending them inappropriate photos or videos, someone who is making sexual gestures or requesting sexual acts or sharing graphic details of their sexual exploits, adults should not be doing that with athletes. Um, And this is the final one that I think is pretty important. Someone that communicates in a way that makes them feel very uncomfortable, especially if the communications are out of view of others. So they're one-on-one over text, over DM, Snapchat, email with nobody CC'd, or the person asks them to keep it a secret. So the kids are the ones who are most likely to spot this kind of behavior because folks who would wish to do harm to kids are really good at hiding this behavior from other adults. The girls are an absolutely indispensable part of keeping our community safe. 
So you've put together some programs that you're teaching to your juniors. Tell us about the programs that you're doing there at, at your boathouse. So it started pretty unofficially, but we were trying to make sure that our athletes understand why we have the policies that we have in place. So mm -hmm. novices are often baffled because they, for instance, are not allowed to be alone in a room with you or that when they email you, you have to CC a parent or another coach and they don't know that they can't add coaches on social media and explaining some of those really concrete policies is actually a pretty good way to introduce this topic and to make sure that they understand the different things that we do for their well-being. So they're super aware of stranger danger from a really young age, but most of them have genuinely never thought about misconduct from known adults. And so what we're trying to do is to make sure that they are prepared and know what to watch for, but also so that they can feel some sense of security in some of the safeguards that we have in place. Tara and I would definitely like to know what the discussions are like, because we we hope that this will help other coaches and, and clubs have similar discussions with their teams. Sure. So usually our discussion has three different parts to it. It starts off by reviewing our team's policies for stuff like online communication, social media, physical interaction, things like that. We cover some important, relevant vocabulary, and then we discuss uh, a relevant case in the media, and we stop periodically in each section to answer questions. So the first part, we start off by discussing how sex and sexual acts and interest in them are a totally normal and enjoyable part of adult life for many people, but they are only enjoyable and ethical if everyone involved can freely give enthusiastic consent. And this helps us to then work through some of those really important concepts like power differentials and coercion and age of consent. And these are really important concepts that we need to make sure kids understand before we dive into tackling some of the, the recent cases that have occurred in the media. So the three big terms that we want our athletes to be familiar with are consent, power imbalance, and coercion. Consent is a freely given and enthusiastic yes to some kind of sexual act, and a lack of a no does not necessarily imply a yes. So to repeat, sex and sexual acts are only fun and ethical if all parties are into it and excited about it. And we also talk about how in Massachusetts, legally, the age of consent is 16. And this means that this is the age that legally, you are thought to be able to understand the consequences of a particular activity, and you can agree to participate in full knowledge of what that's going to entail and the consequences that might be involved. This applies to people of all genders. It is against the law in Massachusetts to have sex with someone who is under 16, even if you yourself are also under 16. And then we talk about in what cases could consent not be freely given, even if someone is 16 or older? So usually the kids are very familiar with sobriety being important for consent. And they also know that using physical force to make someone engage in sexual activity is not okay. But mm -hmm. they're much less familiar with non-physical coercion and those are really important things to cover, particularly with the population of kids that we have. Kids that row 
tend to often be pretty high achievers and they've been taught that it pays to please the adults in their lives. So parents, coaches, teachers, religious figures, they, they've been taught that they need to do what they're told in order to be successful, um, whether it's implicit or explicit. Then we talk about power imbalances and we remind them that consent is not possible if someone feels that they do not have a choice. So a relationship that has a power imbalance is when one person can influence things like money, a place to live, a job, your place on the team, or your reputation. Having power over someone can influence how comfortable they feel saying no to sex or sexual acts. And somebody may genuinely fear negative consequences for not consenting. So we then have them talk about what kinds of power imbalances they see in their own lives. So in what situations they are the person who has power and in what situations another party has power. And that's often pretty instructive. Finally, the last term that we wanna make sure that they understand is coercion. And coercion is the practice of getting someone to do some kind of sexual act, and this part is key, often in a non-physical way. So examples might include threatening to get someone expelled or fired or deported or arrested, release explicit photos of them, something similar, if they don't agree to participate in sexual acts, getting somebody heavily intoxicated, ignoring their no until you finally get a yes, making sexual acts a condition of receiving a promotion or a coveted place on the team. And then this last one I think is probably the most important, using guilt. And this is really important for high-performing teams. You might get something like, I took you out to an expensive dinner and the right thing for, for you to do would be for you to do something for me in return and I should get to decide what that is. That would be the polite thing to do. Or they might say, it's been such a long time since I've had sex. I can't believe you're just going to go home. If I'd known that you were going to be so rude, I wouldn't have invited you here. So guilt is something that's very, very important to keep in mind because it's not physical coercion, but it is coercion. Mm -hmm. And once we've yeah. covered that stuff, that gives us a really good background for being able to discuss an example or two that's been in the media and they're much more readily able to identify what behaviors were and were not okay in each case. So for instance, even if it was two adults, what other factors were, were present that made it so that one person could not freely and enthusiastically give consent? Yeah. What sort of feedback have you gotten from your athletes and from parents? Because I can see this being a very delicate issue to discuss around the boathouse. I would actually say the, the feedback has been overwhelmingly positive, but I was actually anticipating a fair amount of fallout from parents because discussing anything to do with sex or sexual activity can be pretty controversial. The impetus to actually make these conversations more comprehensive and make sure they were actually happening every season rather than sporadically or intermittently was actually an email that I got from a parent. So she had read an article in the media about sexual abuse in sports and she forwarded it to me and said i would love to know if you might consider discussing this with the kids 
I broached the topic with our program director and I offered to take on the task myself. And I said that I thought it was very important and that I was down to deal with whatever flack I might catch from parents or admin. And he mm -hmm. said to go for it. And the team's board of directors has also been very supportive of these efforts in the time since. And when we do do these talks, we tell the kids in advance what day it's going to occur. So we stick it on our team calendar so they know it's coming. And we also give the parents a heads up that we're going to be having our seasonal safe sport talk and talk about stuff like team policies. The parent feedback has been not just neutral, but really positive. And I've gotten a ton of emails from parents saying, thank you for discussing this with the kids. Mm -hmm. And it's obviously an issue that people really care about, but parents seem to have a hard time talking about it with their kids. Mm -hmm. And I had a parent who told me that they, they tried to discuss this with their teenager and the kid was so mortified that they practically ran out of the room, mm -hmm. but it's, it's clearly something that people care about. And I actually even had a family ask if my assistant and I could please give her daughter a quick rundown of the major points of the talk because she was out sick on the day that we talked about it as a team. Mm -hmm. And we said that we would, and we did. But I think the most important feedback by far has actually been from my athletes themselves. So it's important to have the support of the parents and your program director and the board, but this really is all about the athletes. And I've been discussing this with teenagers in a number of different ways for many years. And I frankly wish I'd started doing it officially sooner. Um, and I've tried a lot of different ways of going about it. And since every team and every group is different, it's often hard to tell if they're really listening or if what you're saying is going to stick. And over time, it's become very, very clear that they are listening and that the discussions do have an impact even after they've graduated or moved on from your program. I recently had a former athlete who got in touch with me just to say, hey, thanks again for having that conversation with us. It made it really easy to spot it when it actually happened. Mm. That's what you want. It's yeah. exactly yeah. what you want. You want, yes. I, and that's always amazing when you look back and say this thing stuck, either as the student or as the teacher or as the coach to know that what you're doing is working. So in addition to the discussion that you have with the athletes, how does that play out during the course of the season? Is there follow-up? Are there reminders? Most of what we do has to just come up in our team meetings. We always meet with our kids before and after every practice. And we also have a bunch of big sit-down meetings as a whole team a couple of times per season. And we send an email every week out to all of the athletes and the parents. It's one of the things that the school asks us to do, where it's just, you know, this is what we did this week. And this is, you know, here's a picture of our athletes on the water and reminder that the, the waivers for the race are due in two weeks. So please make sure that you do them. And that's also a really good place to do some follow-up to make sure that the message is getting across and it's a good place to, to refer back to things. But as things come up over the course of the season, you know, you, you do get kids that add you on social media. And so you might have to have a conversation where you say, Hey, you know, I would love to connect to you on social media after you graduate, if you're still interested. But at the moment, I can't connect to you using my personal account. If you want to add our team account, you're more than welcome to, but I'm not able to do that right now. It's nothing to do with you personally. It's just our team's policy. What do you wish that um, someone had told you about this topic when you were a young person? I think 
I think the thing that I wish that I had known sooner is that it's important to recognize that you yourself are not the cause of someone else's behavior. And it's really easy for folks to agonize over whether we might have brought something upon ourselves somehow because perhaps they were too friendly or by agreeing to a date with someone or because we forgot to lock our door before we went to bed or by not realizing somebody's true intentions sooner. And society often adds to this by blaming survivors for what happened. But frankly, that's that's BS. The blame and the shame are are not ours to own. They're they're the perpetrators and only the perpetrators. I wanted to ask you, what's your hope for the future of being safe in the sport of rowing? So I have two. And my first one is that we will condemn physical, emotional, and sexual misconduct and hold our colleagues, ourselves, and our organizations accountable. So this might include following all local and federal laws related to mandatory reporting, providing ongoing education for coaches and for athletes, outlining and following a fair and objective process for dealing with it when complaints are made, taking action in a timely manner, and issuing meaningful consequences for violations. And my second hope is that we'll continue to embrace the power of our community. And we talk about all these dangerous things with our athletes, but we, we always try to end it by reminding them that the, the female rowing community is really, really tough and we all look out for each other. So we're, we're stronger together and we tell the kids that they become part of that special club the minute they walked in the door for their first day of novice. And mm -hmm. when the BU Bridge here in Boston was painted with the giant Believe Women on it, my assistant and I had the girls row out into the basin so that they could all see it. And mm. we wanted them to better understand why the message was there and why it was so important to the rowing community at that particular time. And even if we compete on different teams or for different programs, we're kind of all one team in this particular way. And there will always be people watching out for them and supporting them, including myself and my assistant, of course. And we hope that they'll look out for one another as well. It's so interesting for them to, I'm sure they, they sit there and think, not only do I feel supported, but now I feel like I have ground underneath me to support my teammate. And I have ground underneath me to speak my truth and maybe a classmate who might be going through something. And the empowerment aspect of it, it must be so satisfying for you as an adult woman, as a coach in the world to know that you're having this effect uh, on the next generation of professional women in the world that you're providing them with is the resources to be able to tell a trusted adult what's going on or report it in some way, call it a grievance procedure or something like that. I think that's where it comes into reality is that they feel like not only are they seeing it, but they know I'm going to go tell the coach and I'm not going to be personally punished for it, or I'm not going to be pers persecuted for it, or I can do it anonymously, or I feel like this is a safe space for me to speak up. Absolutely. So we teach them to try their best to take a screenshot if the behavior is happening online and to bring their concerns to a trusted adult as soon as possible. And it's okay if they're not sure if something is inappropriate or if they just want to talk something through, we are always happy to talk to them about 
anything that's worrying them at any time, whether it's related to misconduct or not. We also yeah. teach them a couple of key things um, because we don't want to perpetuate the belief that anytime a coach or a teacher does something they don't like, it's automatically abuse. Mm -hmm. So an important and crucial part of this discussion is understanding that discomfort is a necessary part of growth and some examples of that. So something that is uncomfortable, but is not necessarily abusive might include your coach putting a bunch of hard workouts in your training plan, or your coach gives you feedback, including critical feedback on your performance. If they are speaking in a loud voice or shouting to be heard across the water from far away and stuff like issuing consequences for misbehavior is not in and of itself abusive, especially if it follows what I call the three R's, which are reasonable in scope related to the infraction and right away. Libby, you've given us a lot of really great information about what's happening there at Brookline High. What sorts of resources did you use to pull together this amazing conversation that you're having with your athletes and parents? So there's a few. So I pulled from the RAIN organization. So Rape, Abuse, Incest National Network. They had some incredible resources that I tapped to create this. And then I also pulled from Safe Sports, MAAPP, which is the Minor Athlete Abuse Prevention Policies. And then MIT also has an amazing website. It's research-based and it's all about raising teens and keeping the lines of communication open as challenging as that can be. Mm -hmm. And even though I'm not a parent myself, I found many of the resources on it to be extremely helpful. One other thing that I think is actually really important, teenagers sort of by definition, they they think that they're super duper mature and they they can't understand why they're not allowed to do things. They feel very adult and they just like, they never think the risks apply to them. And there are ways that we can kind of exploit that when we talk about these tough topics. So we very strategically picked our examples that we had the kids look at when we were having these discussions. And we picked the Ted Nash case because the kid in question, she was only 13 and she was younger than, than my athletes. And because of the way they're wired, they never think that they are too immature to handle a particular situation. They're like, yeah, that, that sounds unpleasant, but like, you know, I, I can, I guess I can kind of deal with it. And it's often really helpful to have them consider if they would still be okay with it, if they had it happen to a younger sibling or to a younger classmate or anyone that they would feel protective of. And sure. the minute you frame something in that way, it changes everything. Well, Libby, this has been really insightful. I'm really impressed by all the work that you're doing there and the initiative that you've taken to bring this to your to your programs and to your kids. And thanks so much for sharing all of this with our listeners. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm hopeful that over the next couple of months that I can finish putting together the presentation that I've used with my athletes and make that more publicly available. Um, I've actually had a chance to share it with the high school wh whose program I coach, and they have a sexual assault awareness program that has been using parts of it, which I think is really great. But I'm always eager to hear from other folks and hear what you're doing, what you've tried that's worked. Um, so please drop me a line anytime. So thank you so much. This has been really, really great. 
Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Never underestimate the power of just like sheer unadulterated fury, frankly. To see photos of Libby and get links to the people, clubs, policies, and resources mentioned in this episode, check out the show notes on our website. Thanks to our patrons whose support helps make this podcast possible. Join our team for as little as $5 a month at steadystatenetwork.com slash Patreon. Steady State Podcast is sponsored in part by Rosource, providing creative design services for clubs, organizations, and regattas. Get the design help you need at rosource.com. Hey, Tara, I think some listeners might not know that Steady State is more than a podcast. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. We should definitely tell them about fr- <laughs> We should definitely tell them about Friday mornings when we get together for coffee chat. We talk about rowing, racing, technique, and deep dive into things like inclusion and leadership. We hope you'll join us Friday mornings at 8 a.m. West, 11 East, live on Instagram. Grab your favorite mug and be a part of the conversation. And sometimes we all need buddies to help get us through long workouts on the ERG. So we lead Steady State Sundays once a month at 6.45 a.m. West, 9.45 a.m. East. Join us on the third Sunday of the month until March. When you sign up for this free 60-minute virtual ERG workout, we provide cues and insights to keep you motivated along the way. So register at SteadyStateNetwork.com slash Sunday. This episode was written, produced, hosted, and edited by me, Tara Morgan. And me, Rachel Friedman. Tara provides additional audio engineering and is our sponsor coordinator. Rachel manages our website, social media, and e-newsletter. Our theme music is by Jonas Hipper. Between us, we have nearly 40 years of rowing, coaching, and coxing experience. Hey, this is Tara. I'm based on Vashon Island, Washington. I founded Seize the Oar Foundation in 2013, and I'm fanatic about coaching Learn to Row, and Pear is the best boat. Hard stop. Hard stop. And this is Rachel. I'm a longtime rower, coaching coxswain in Washington, D.C. I'm the owner of Row Source, and I'm a tiny bit squeamish about sculling. Find us on Instagram and Facebook at State State Network, Seize the Oar, and Row Source. In two, way enough. That's one, two,